This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. It may surprise you to and start talking and thinking about Lent in January, but Lent is approaching. It's beginning in just over two weeks, at least from the time that this video is going live. And I thought it would be good to prepare ourselves for Lent because much of the great spiritual fruits of Lent come from increased study of the faith and in rooting more our thoughts and lives in the ideas of the saints. And especially in a time when the church is in crisis and ambiguous teachings are being promulgated and blatant teachings that fly in the face of Catholic morality are being promulgated by the highest authorities in the church, it's good to sometimes get back to basics. So today I'm going to start bringing you the work of St. Thomas More. He had a lot to say, and I think as we get prepare for and go through Lent, reflecting on the sadness of Christ is actually something that is good. And St. Thomas More had a lot to say about our Lord's passion and the sadness he felt in his earthly ministry. The sadness, the weariness, the fear, and the prayer of Christ before he was taken prisoner. Part 1. When Jesus had said these things, they recited to him and went on to the Mount of Olives. Though he had spoken at length about holiness during the supper with his apostles, nevertheless he finished his discourses with a hymn when he was ready to leave. Alas, how different we are from Christ, although we call ourselves Christians. Our conversation during meals is not only meaningless and inconsequential, and even for such negligence Christ warned us that we will have to render an accounting, but often our table talk is also vicious. And then finally, when we are bloated with food and drink, we leave the table without giving thanks to God for the banquets he has bestowed upon us, with never a thought for the gratitude we owe him. Paul of St. Mary, Archbishop of Burgos, a learned holy man and an outstanding investigator of sacred subjects, gives some convincing arguments to show that the hymn which Christ at that time recited with his apostles consisted of those six psalms which taken together are called by our elder brothers the great alleluia namely psalm 112 and the five following it for from very ancient times our elder brothers have followed the custom of reciting these six psalms under the name great alleluia as a prayer of thanksgiving at the passover and certain other principal feasts and even now they still go through the same hymn on the same feast days but as for us, though we used to say different hymns of thanksgiving and benediction at meals according to the different times of the year, each hymn suited to its season, we have now permitted almost all of them to fall out of use, and we rest content with saying two or three words, no matter what, before going away, and even those few words we mumble merely for form's sake, muttering through our yawns. They went out to the Mount of Olives, not to bed, the prophet says. I arose in the middle of the night to pay homage to you, but Christ did not even lie down in bed. But as for us, I wish we could truly apply to ourselves even the text. I thought of you as I lay in my bed. Moreover, it was not yet summer when Christ left the supper and went over to the mount. For it was not that much beyond the vernal equinox, and that the night was cold is clearly shown by the fact that the servants were warming themselves around the coal fires in the courtyard of the high priest. But this was not the first time Christ had done this, as the evangelist clearly testifies when he says, as he customarily did. He went up a mountain to pray, teaching us by his sign that when we prepare ourselves to pray, we must lift our minds from the bustling confusion of human concerns to the contemplative nature of heavenly things. Mount Olivet itself also has a mysterious significance, 
planted as it was with olive trees. For the olive branch was generally used as a symbol of peace, which Christ came to establish between God and man after their long alienation. Moreover, the oil which is produced from the olive represents the anointing by the Spirit, for Christ came and then returned to his Father in order to send the Holy Spirit upon the disciples so that his anointing might then teach them what they would not have been able to bear had it been told them only a short time before. Across the stream is Cedron to the outlying estate named Gethsemane. The stream Cedron lies between the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, and the word Cedron in the language of our elder brothers means sadness. The name Gethsemane in that language means most fertile valley or valley of olives. And so there is no reason for us to attribute it merely to chance that the evangelist recorded these place names so carefully. For if that were the case, once they had reported that he went to the Mount of Olives, they would have considered that they had said quite enough, if it did not that God had veiled under these place names some mysterious meanings, which attentive men, with the help of the Holy Spirit, would try to uncover because the names were mentioned. And so, since not a single syllable can be thought inconsequential in the composition which was dictated by the Holy Spirit, as the apostles wrote it, and since not a sparrow falls to the earth without God's direction, I cannot think either that the evangelists mentioned those names accidentally, or that our elder brothers assigned them to the places, whatever they themselves intended when they named them, without a secret plan, though unknown to, the, to them themselves, of the Holy Spirit who concealed in these names a store of sacred mysteries to be ferreted out sometime later. But since Cedron means sadness and also blackness, and since this same word is the name, not only the stream mentioned by the evangelists, but also, as is sufficiently established, of the valley through which the stream flows, and which separates the city from the estate Gethsemane, these names, if their effect is not blocked by her drowsiness, reminds us that while we are exiled from the Lord, as the Apostle says, we must surely cross over before we come to the fruitful Mount of Olives and the pleasant state of, estate of Gethsemane, an estate which is not gloomy and ugly to look at, but most fertile in every sort of joy. We must, I say, cross over the valley in the stream of Cedron, a valley of tears and a stream of sadness whose waves can wash away the blackness and filth of our sins. But if we get so weary of pain and grief that we perversely attempt to change this world, this place of labor and penance, into a joyful haven of rest, if we seek heaven on earth, we cut ourselves off forever from true happiness and will drown ourselves in penance when it is too late to do any good and unbearable, untenable tribulations as well. This, then, is the very salutary lesson contained in these place names. So fittingly chosen are they. But as the words of Holy Scripture are not tied to one sense only, but rather are teeming with various mysterious meanings, these place names harmonize with the immediate context of Christ's passion very well. As if for that reason alone God's eternal providence had seen to it that these places should long beforehand have been designated by such names, as would prove to be, some centuries later, preordained tokens of his passion, as the comparison of his deeds with the names would show. For since Cedron means blackened, does it not seem to recall that prediction of the prophet that Christ would work out his glory by means of inglorious torment, that he would be disfigured by dark bruises, gore, spittle, and dirt. There's nothing beautiful or handsome about his face. Then, too, the meaning of the stream he crossed, sad, was far from irrelevant as he himself testified when he said, My soul is sad unto passing. And his disciples also followed him. That is, the eleven who had remained followed him. As for the twelfth, the devil entered into him after the morsel and made off with him, so that he did not follow the master as a disciple, but pursued him as a traitor, and bore out only too well what Christ said. He who is not with me is against me. Against Christ he certainly was, since that very moment he was preparing to spring his trap for him, while the other disciples were following after him to pray. 
Let us follow after Christ and pray to the Father together with him. Let us not emulate Judas by departing from Christ, after partaking of his favors and dining excellently with him, lest we should bear out that prophecy. If you saw a thief, you ran away with him. And that was St. Thomas More, reminding us we sh about our own laxness and, la and laxity in our lives. As we prepare for Lent, perhaps we should focus on remedying our laxity in our lives of prayer, in our lives of being thankful for the most basic things that God has given us in this life, and to remember that we should be reflecting on Christ in all things. Instead of letting our prayer lives become moments of formality and moments of essential, essentially mental lethargy, we should focus on our prayers. Now and leading up into Lent, it's a good time to refocus ourselves. Let me know what you're going to do for Lent. I'm very curious. And I will be removing some distractions in the secular world from my life as I continue to do my work here. But I will be separating some of my secular distractions during Lent as I usually do, as well as some personal disciplines. But let me know what some things you might be thinking about doing for Lent. And as I always say, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.